0: The next section is called Purpose and Benefits of Contemplation of the Body. Although contemplating the nature of the body highlights its less attractive features, the purpose of this exercise is not to demonize the body. While it is certainly true that at times the discourses describe the human body in rather negative terms, some of these instances occur in a particular context in which the point being made is that the speakers in question have overcome all attachment to their body. In contrast, the Kayagata Sati Sutta, that's the mindfulness of the body sutta, takes the physical bliss of absorption attainment as an object for body contemplation. This passage clearly demonstrates that contemplation of the body is not necessarily linked to repugnance and loathing. As we are... uh, Talking about last time, uh, these uh, uh, two particular um, terms that are often used in terms of contemplation of the body, and when we do the, um, the uh, chanting, recollecting the, uh, the parts of the, the 32 parts of the body, then um, uh, the, um, the Pali words are, are, that I often used are patikula sanya, which means the uh, uh, loathsomeness or the sort of disgusting nature of the body, so that's definitely a, uh, uh, a term describing an off-putting or repellent quality. And then the other is asuba, which literally means not beautiful. And so um, those are the, um, the the kind of terms that uh, are, he's referring to in term, uh, recognizing that the body is sometimes described in rather negative terms, uh, it's also, uh, as I was saying last time, bearing in mind that that uh, they often have the particular role of counteracting sexual desire and the the uh, capacity of the mind and the senses to, um, say, uh, view bodies in terms of their attractive qualities, um, of other people's bodies, or just focusing on your own your own body in terms of attractive and unattractive aspects. And as I mentioned, that. Uh, Staggering amounts of, of money, time, and uh, resources, and and certainly emotional energy are spent on on what the body looks like. Uh, that uh, uh, it's a huge uh, concern uh, for the in the human world of, and, and is got its own basis in in nature. Um, uh, that uh, <clears throat> and so that because that's such a powerful force, then. These, um, in a way, the, some of the most common ways of reflecting on the body are structured to counteract that that force. That's, I uh, say, deliberately casting the body in terms of, uh, or seeing the body in terms of attractiveness. Uh, a different practice that I like to encourage in this respect um, is uh, uh, to imagine yourself as a different kind of animal, so that if you uh, or if you look at other animals um, in the animal world or the insect world uh, <coughs> when you see animals getting particularly excited by each other like in, in the springtime you hear the birds singing their songs trying to attract each other um, then to recognize well that's a, that's a very fine robin but doesn't float my boat as they say <laughs> or, <that. laughs> or this, um, yeah, this uh, <coughs> these these flies are very attracted towards each other, but really, I couldn't get that stoked about another fly. Um, if I was a fly, maybe that would, that would work, but uh, I, you know, this fly, these two flies obviously find each other very attractive, but that is really not something I can see. I can't take a fly as a sexually desirable object. It just, it's not working. But yet yeah, you can see, well, those two flies, they're really fond of each other. You know, they're definitely developing a relationship. And uh, and say, so, well, isn't that interesting? Because to those to those two, they are absolutely um, uh, uh, attracted to, to each other, or at least one is to the other, and um, and yet from your human perceptions, it's like, well, no, it's a fly, it's like an insect. But well, how could that be attractive? And, uh, I, and there's a wonderful book, uh, another one of these um, sort of popular science books that I, I occasionally recommend, which is called. Um, Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice for All Creation. It's an interesting title. It's by an Oxford University uh, zoologist called Olivia Hudson. And it's written as a kind of advice for the lovelorn, uh, like sort of an advice uh, um, page for like a, a magazine. And it's like, well, I'm a sand fly, <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm having problems because none of the girls will look at me. Uh, and it, and she's, a, she's a zoologist, so she's very well acquainted with all these different creatures insects and animals and birds and fishes and, and so she goes through these different um, ways of, sort of mating behaviors and attraction procedures uh, and, uh, and the extraordinary variety of ways that, that animals of different sorts manage to replicate themselves and, uh, and it's like a sort of advice for the lovelorn uh, column and she's, she's very witty as well but it, it, in terms of developing uh, an objectivity towards the power of sexual attraction, then it's it's really it's a, a, an interesting mental exercise that um, because she does literally put herself into the the uh, the, the role. Of, you know, I'm a sand flea. You know, <laughs> and uh, and I, I've got some problems because uh, you know this is what my uh, my girlfriend is doing. And that uh, it might seem uh, uh, so sort of a bit superficial or flippant, but these can be very powerful uh, um, reflections. If you, uh, you know, that because oftentimes the um, the 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 being that we're most attracted to, or that the mind goes, "Wow," and lights up when that that other person is present, that becomes a few years later the very one that you will, "Wow," <laughs> and uh, that. Uh, a huge and tragic number of uh, of um, uh, causes of human vi- uh, violence between people and and uh, uh, physical harm and, and even murder uh, carried out between people who are married to each other or partners to each other and had walked down the church aisle together. They uh, end up being um, in a, a states of incredible uh, aversion and. Uh, being in the role of uh, of teaching meditation and uh, running retreats oftentimes when you if you uh, are teaching meditation on loving kindness and uh, it's it's quite striking the number of people when you you suggest a, a reflection like you know, may all beings be may all beings be happy um, you know sort of loving kindness to you know all beings of the world that it's not uncommon for there's one being <laughs> May all beings be happy except her, you know, <laughs> that's, that's your ex. And um, the uh, that the, the very person that you bonded to, him or her, uh, the, in the most sort of deep and strong way becomes the, the, the object of great aversion. So it's helpful to, to reflect on that, the strength of that, and how when you, and looking at other animals in particular, how that the, you know, when animals are, are very... Um, uh, attracted to each other, or working very, very hard to, to to draw a mate, to be able to look and say to that robin, to, to look at that robin, and think I couldn't possibly get excited or interested in that robin or a spider. You know that these spiders, certain certain ones, that the, the 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 males are very small, the females are very large, and the and the females are very uninterested in getting uh, and being mated with, but the, and will keep driving off the males or ripping their legs off and harming them, and the males will keep coming back to try and mate with the females until they're actually killed. Um, and so something is driving that, that little being. Uh, well, of course, to, its own, to itself it's not little, it's just it, it, its own size. But uh, that force that's driving, uh, and then you say, I couldn't get attracted. I'll, well, I'll keep going back to the point where my, li- my limbs are being ripped off, and I know death is coming, but I don't care because, because. <laughs> there's, a, there's an opportunity and uh, it's important for us to, to uh, say uh, when to, to, to get to know that and to see to be able to see that. Well, I couldn't possibly be attracted by that that and say, but yeah, look, that other being is ready to die to get close to this other one. But it's absolutely uninteresting to me. Therefore, when I'm feeling that towards some other person, um, isn't isn't that uh, in a similar category? Uh, uh, can i uh, can i see that my fascination with, with this person or uh, the other person is is similarly it seems like well, no 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 but no he's really different uh, this is this is this is this is something special this is this is completely unique this is the the love that's never known it's it's like in all the universe so like, yes <laughs> and it uh, it's not to to be suppressive or dismissive but just to put things in a in a context and to get to know the, the power of that kind of delusion. Uh, I often tell a story when when I was a, uh, a loose-living uh, student at, uh, in London back in the 70s, and um, I was at a, a, a party of some friends, and you know, I, was a, 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 I was not a, an abstemious uh, um, and sort of straight-laced teenager, I was very much a sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll kind of teenager. And um, this, this particular party, this uh, young woman, was uh, all eyes for me and having a very a- avid conversation. And, uh, and uh, I was quite happy to be given such attention. And we were, uh, we were chatting away with great um, vigor. And of course, uh, uh, you know, I can talk the hind leg of a donkey now and I could do the same at that time. <laughs> so we're chatting vigorously away and she's, uh, she's entranced and, and all sparkly-eyed and uh, I, I did have an, I did have some sort of recognition she did have a boyfriend and um, but of course that doesn't matter at all and uh, and at a certain point, of course you know there's lots of booze and and uh, other um, chemical assistance going on in the air and so we so chatting away and having this this avid and lengthy um discussion and I'm really enjoying the the attention this beautiful young thing is is paying me and then uh, a friend of mine came up and said um." There's three blokes holding her boyfriend down in the next room. He's got a knife, and he's uh, and he's re- he's very very angry. And he's and uh, you know you, you better get out of here because he's trying to he's trying to get in and you're you know you're really in danger. And for a mo- and for a moment, something in me said so. I mean, there's this beautiful young thing who's all eyes for me, and like well that outvotes everything. And then, then after three or four seconds, this thought came into my mind. There's a man being held with a knife, being held down by three people in the next room. Um, you should probably respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but for the, and I mention it in Dharma talks, and I talk about it, because quite seriously, for a few seconds, it's like, there really was that feeling of, so? So what? And then this your life is in danger, <laughs> wake up. <laughs> and uh, it was quite extraordinary that, that there was something in me that just, just said so, that really didn't, didn't care. And so, yeah, as I said, after a few seconds, wisdom arose. And, and then it was quite, uh, as, a, uh, as that sort of came in, I thought, okay, well, I, better, I better leave. <laughs> or at least stop the conversation and go somewhere else. But it was astonishing how in that that moment it was it was completely matter of fact that like this uh this engagement out outweighs everything this is more important than anything, even like the prospect of physical death or serious harm so just did at that moment it didn't matter, so it shines a light on the depth of delusion that the the mind can be drawn into when we we uh um say. Following that kind of uh, fascination, obviously, it's it's uh, the chemistry of the body is part of it, but also we have a lot of you know, the, all the, the, the social uh, and um, uh, emotional cues of uh, connecting together with other people and uh, the, the, the 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 wholesome qualities of people uh, that can people can have in in a relationship with each other. So it's not to belittle that. But uh, the <coughs> contemplations of the body and these sort of looking at the um, the putting qualities of the body, the, the um, asuba, it's particularly counteracting that sort of hormonal force that that, that before thoughts is yes, <laughs> and uh, and it's to bring into the picture like well wait a minute, <laughs> what what is it? Is the beauty there, or is it is it in the eye of the beholder? That uh, where is it? Another little story I, I like to tell is uh, it was very um, very uh, impactful was that um, many years ago I, I was leading a, a day-long workshop on the Four Noble Truths at the City of 10,000 Buddhas in, uh, in California. It's this very traditional uh, Chinese meditation monastery. And uh, Master Hua, the, the abbot there, was very, uh, very uh, common. It's a huge place. It used to be the state mental hospital. It's a huge place with about 80 buildings. And so he would receive lots of um, <coughs> uh, animals. People would release there sort of cats and dogs and and rabbits and such like. But they also people would would uh, release peacocks and peahens. So there was a whole population of, of pea creatures there. And, uh, and during this this day long workshop, the the pathway between the the meditation hall where we were meeting for the for the sessions and where I was staying, I went past this little g- garden area, and there was uh, like a, 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 a water garden, and <clears throat> and I noticed this peacock was, was, um, was walking around uh, in, the, um, in this little garden, a sort of fenced-in garden area, and very vigorously displaying its you know, fanning its tail, and they got this fantastic way of fanning the tail, and then shimmering it tsharp, so all the colours uh, scintillate, and um, so I think, well, oh, that's a beautiful peacock, and then go past at 9 in the morning, and then, you know, going at 10 in the morning, is the peacock's still there, 1 in the afternoon, the peacock's still going, and 3 in the afternoon, oh, wow, that peacock is really, it's really working hard. And I thought, what's, it? and it's, but it's, all, it's in there all by itself, and I thought, well, that peacock is kind of going around and around, and it's and it sort of, it looks like it's sort of displaying, or it's trying to attract a mate, and I thought, well, there's no peahen there. What's it doing? And I realised, oh, there's this rock. And there was, a, there was a, a rock beside the pond. I thought, no, come on. And there was a rock beside the pond. And it was displaying to get the rock to respond. It thought the rock was a peahen. And, and obviously, the peacocks were a little bit dim. <laughs> but it was working, it'd been working really hard just trying to get a response from this, this rock. It, it thought it was a peahen. And I thought, oh, come on, Amaro, you're, you're just fooling yourself. And then I stopped and watched. No, it's kind of going around so going around that way and shivering its tail and saying, "You know come on, honey, you know <laughs> I've been working for six hours here, please, you know just at least at least look at me, you know, just give me some kind of response and I felt great compassion for this this poor creature that was just like, uh, or also a sense of yeah, I've been there <laughs> but just your, your mind is so so caught up and entranced in that realm and uh, and yet. The object is is totally insensate. There, it's a rock. It's there's nothing there. But yet the the mind, so sort of so caught in its own projections, in its own kind of chemical, um, uh, say chemically fueled perceptions. That it's like, well, well, if I just keep trying, you know, maybe maybe she'll respond. (laughs) So uh, that was a very. uh, um, Powerful little teaching, so that the, the collection of talks from that, that day got the. Uh, um, I don't know if they've ever been printed up, but it was, it was called the, the Peacock Who Wooed a Rock. That was the kind uh, uh, reflections on the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> so, to carry on. The purpose of contemplating the nature of the body is to bring its unattractive aspects to the forefront of one's attention thereby placing the attractive aspects previously emphasized in a more balanced context. The aim uh, is a balanced and detached attitude towards the body. With such a balanced attitude, one sees the body merely as a product of conditions, a product with which one need not identify. The The discourses illustrate the practice and the benefits of contemplating the body with a variety of similes. One of these similes depicts a man carrying a bowl brimming with oil on his head through a crowd, watching a beautiful girl singing and dancing. He is followed by another man with a drawn sword, ready to cut off his head if even one drop of oil is spilled. To preserve his life, the man carrying the oil has to apply his full attention to each step and movement without allowing the commotion around the girl to distract him. So that, uh, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, that's uh, in response to a question that somebody asked the Buddha, how much mindfulness does one have to have in order to achieve uh, complete liberation? And the Buddha says, if you imagine a marketplace where the most uh, beautiful girl in the district is is singing and dancing, and uh, so there's a big crowd of people um, watching the... The dancing, and you've got this this um, bowl full of oil, brim full of oil, so that the oil is sort of is uh, there's a, like a meniscus of oil, so it's absolutely full to the brim, and there's an executioner walking behind you, and then you're walking through the crowd at the uh, in the um, uh, in the uh, uh, in the middle of the town uh, as they're watching the 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 singing and dancing, and so that he said, that that's the amount of mindfulness you need. <laughs> The careful behaviour of the man carrying the oil exemplifies the circumspect behaviour of a practitioner well established in present moment awareness of the body. The image of carrying an object on the head in particular points to the balance and centeredness that accompany bodily activities carried out with sati. Another important aspect of this simile is that it relates sustained awareness of the body's activities to sense restraint. In this way, it vividly illustrates the importance of developing awareness grounded in the body, since in the situation depicted in this simile, restraint of the senses through being grounded in the body constitutes the means to preserve one's life in the midst of commotion and danger. And uh, also, just the just that as a simple practice, uh, there was um, uh, a number of monasteries, I think... Uh, uh, what Kiriwanga and Sujito was first ordained and lived for, for three years, that was one of the practices that they would do, uh, would be to fill the, um, the arms bowl, uh, not carrying it on your head, but it's filling your, your arms bowl with water, so that it's, it's brim-full, and then just to walk around your kuti. So, no crowds, no, no singing and dancing, no, no other people, just by yourself. And, um, and then if you spill a drop of water, you have to go around again. So you end up. uh, Those who live there, uh, you have to ask Ajahn Sajito about it. But uh, those who who follow that practice say you get your arms get very very tired. (laughs) But uh, also it's an extremely good uh, good practice, and it's something that um, because it is surprising how a heavier bowl of water is, and also. the, uh, the difficulty of keeping the, the hands perfectly steady as the, as the body moves. And it really does take a huge amount of body awareness to, to focus and to, to be aware of how your body is moving, what effect that has on the, the, the bowl that you're, you're carrying, and, and also the, um, uh, as, you, as you go around, the, the further that you walk, how the strain in your arms also affects... Um, what you're doing, so it's a uh, it's a physical exercise that is an interesting, um, say, uh, adjunct or a, sort of an additional kind of of uh, meditation practice of both connected with walking meditation, but also really involves the whole body and is a, a, a and is a very powerful concentration exercise as well. So if you if you want to develop uh, uh, keep the sort of the concentration. Um, exercise going whilst you're doing walking meditation, then this is a, a useful thing to do because also you can just walk up and down on a walking meditation path with a with a, a bowl. Um, <coughs> it's a bit windy at the moment, so, <laughs> so that's inconvenient. But uh, inside a room then, uh, or in a sheltered place, then uh, then one can do that. Or maybe under the cloister would be a, be sufficiently sheltered for that. But it is a it's a really uh, um, interesting exercise, and uh, so worth worth uh, trying out if you want to um, say particularly work on the mindfulness of the body and uh, and the uh, acute concentration aspect. Sense restraint comes up again in another simile, which compares mindfulness of the body to a strong post to which six different wild animals are bound. Since the animals are firmly bound to the post, however much they might struggle to escape, they have sooner or later to sit or lie down next to the post. Similarly, mindfulness of the body can become a strong post for tethering the six senses. Uh, I mentioned this uh, a little while ago. Um, This uh, sutta on the six animals is in the... um, Salayatana um, Sanjuta, in the Connected Discourses about the six senses. That's section 35. And it's uh, Sutta number 247, if you want to look it up for yourselves. And so the the image is, um, the the Buddha says, well, what do you think um, if you had six animals uh, 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 all tied together? If you had uh, a dog, a jackal, a snake, a bird, a monkey... And an alligator, uh, all tied together. So each one has a rope around its neck, like the, um, around its feet, like around the foot of the eagle, or the, um, around, the, the the, the monkey, around the leg of the monkey, or around the leg of the alligator, and, and so forth. <clears throat> and then each of those six animals, uh, the, the one that's strongest, would, would uh, they would all pull against each other and struggle. The, the alligator wants to get into the water, the snake wants to get into the burrow in the ground. The monkey wants to climb up into the trees, the bird wants to fly in the air, the dog wants to get uh, into the, to the village, and the jackal wants to get to the, the charnel ground, the, the, the burial ground. So each of the six want to go in a different to a different element, a different domain. and so it's not just six of six the same kind of animals. I mean you might think even taking six dogs for a walk is, is hard, but uh, these are like animals that all want to be in a different domain so that they're, they're pulling in different directions. That, uh, what do you think, you know, what would be the result? And then they, they say, well, venerable sir, the result would be a lot of chaos and confusion and the the, the animal which is the strongest would, would pull and uh, dominate the others until it got tired and got worn out and then another of the animals would pull and, and, and dominate. Uh, and so they would they would struggle against each other and you get this magnificent image of chaos, confusion, teeth, claws, beaks and feathers and fur and confusion and mess. So it's so one of these great graphic images that the Buddha um, establishes. There's, so instead of them pulling against each other, and just uh, each trying to go off to its own domain, if instead you took a firm pillar and you pounded that into the ground, and then all six animals were then tied to that, to that pillar, then what do you think would happen? Then they said, well of course the, what would happen would be each animal would pull against its rope uh, tied to the pillar, but then as the pillar is pounded firmly into the ground and can't be moved, then each one uh, would uh, struggle for a while and pull against uh, their rope, but eventually seeing that there was, they, they couldn't make any impression, they couldn't, um, uh, say, uh, uh, get anywhere, then they would eventually settle down and, and become quiet. And he said, so the, this is a symbol for the six senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. Uh, and uh, um, the uh, that the represent uh, are represented by the six animals, and then the firm post pounded into the ground is uh, an image for mindfulness directed towards the body. So that uh, uh, when there's mindfulness of the body is established, then the six senses have a um, a firm basis and uh, can't uh, say. Condition the 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 distraction and confusion of the mind that comes when the when the, the there is no mindfulness of the body, but the the mind the mind is caught up in hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. This simile compares the mental agitation of searching for sensual gratification to wild animals struggling to go in different directions. Once the post of bodily mindfulness is firmly established, however, the senses will invariably have to calm down, just as the animals will come to lie down next to the post to which they are bound. This simile points to the benefit of being anchored or grounded in the experience of the present moment through mindfulness of the body. Lacking such grounding in body awareness, attachment and clinging can easily arise. Any particular questions or comments so far? Don't be shy, these readings are for you, they're not for me. So I can just sort of talk several legs off several donkeys. <laughs> yeah. But please uh, do ask if there's things that uh, we'd like clarifying or... Okay, good. A similar connotation underlies a set of similes in the kayagata Sati sutta which present, mi- which present mindfulness of the body as a crucial factor for withstanding mara, the personification of mental defilements. Just as a heavy stone ball can penetrate a mound of wet clay, or just as a fire can be produced from dry wood, or just as an empty jug can be easily filled with water, so too will Mara find an opportunity to overpower those who are not well established in mindfulness of the body. But just as a light ball of string cannot penetrate a door panel made of heartwood, or just as fire cannot be produced from wet wood, or just as a full jug cannot take more water, so too will Mara be unable to overpower those who develop and cultivate a mindfulness of the body. Actually, there's a misprint here, it says, develop und cultivate. (laughs) Interesting, he's a German, there's an interesting misprint in German there. Those who develop und cultivate mindfulness of the body. The Kayagata Sati Sutta contains the same sequence of body contemplations as the Satipatthana Sutta. There is, however, a notable difference in the Kayagata Sati Sutta's version of the refrain, which relates body contemplation to the overcoming of worldly thoughts and the development of concentration. This points to another important benefit of body contemplation: overcoming sensual infatuation through a proper assessment of the nature of the body. Such waning as sensual infatuation facilitates the development of concentration unhindered by sensual distractions. The Kayagata Sati Sutta illustrates this with another set of similes. Just as drinking water will flow out of a jug if it's tipped over, or just as water in a pond will flow out if the embankment is broken, or just as a skilled driver is able to drive a chariot wherever he likes, so too mindfulness of the body will lead easily to the development of deep concentration. So, also in, in terms of um, the um, uh, that Kayagata Sati Sutta and this uh, aspects of development of, of concentration, one of the uh, interest in, and also speaking about um, overcoming sensual infatuation, another interesting Sutta to consider is the Magandiya Sutta, which is number seventy five in the Majjhima Nikaya, and in that. Uh, um, uh, in that sutta, magandhi is a um, a, a layperson and quite a uh, an interested student of the Buddha, but he's also obviously very much a sensualist. He's a person who who likes the um, the, the the pleasures of the senses, and he can't. Uh, it starts off with him being unable to really see what's wrong with, with sense pleasure because it's so nice. <laughs> I mean, what could what could be wrong with this? It's, it's so pleasant, and uh, you know, wh- why should we have to to give this up? And um, so there's an interesting dialogue. It's not totally unique, but it's, it's uh, not that common. And the, the dialogue that ensues, the, the Buddha asks Magandhya, he says, well, Magandhi, um, uh if you were not a human being, but if you were uh, born up in the Tava heaven, uh, up in the, the heaven of the 33 deities, and there you were living in the Nandana grove of bliss and, um, uh, and, and you had an you know, extraordinary, pleasant, and beautiful life of a, deva, of a deva prince there, up in the Nandana grove. Uh, how would you uh, relate to the kind of worldly pleasures that you experience now as a human being? You know, what, what, would, what would they say to you? How would you feel about those? And he said, "Well, I wouldn't be at, at all interested. You know, I, it would be they're so sort of coarse and vulgar and uh, and uh, incomplete. But the, you know, the the pleasure that, that I would have in, up in the Nandana Grove of the Tavatimsa Heaven would be incomparable, immeasurable, you know, and uh, so that uh, I just wouldn't be interested in worldly pleasures." And then the, the Buddha said, "Was well, in, in exactly the same way, uh, um it's that that a targeter uh, knows of uh, knows of, of, of a bliss, knows of, uh, of a pleasure that is, say, even more um, uh, sensory, sensually delightful. Is even more pleasant by far than the, the the pleasure that comes from life up in the Nandana Grove of the the Tower Heaven. And so, therefore, um, in, in, because of knowing that kind of pleasure and being aware and, uh, and having access to that kind of um, uh, vastly superior pleasure, then the, the worldly pleasures are, are uninteresting, they're un, unattractive, they're unappealing. So he, he's saying that it's not through, say, the, the um, a sort of criticism or negativity towards sense pleasure in and of itself, it's just saying, well, uh, you know, when your mind knows these uh, beautiful, wholesome states, when the mind is able to be, um, say, uh, filled with. The, the, the brightness and clarity and, and bliss of, of wholesome states and, and the, the bliss of, of non-attachment then the worldly pleasures that you get from eating and drinking and singing and dancing and, and such like uh, they're just not interesting so it's not like a condemnation of sense pleasure but just saying it's just not as, not as good as the stuff that I've got access to <laughs> and so it's, a, it's an interesting comment in, in saying that the, the Buddha is not against pleasure at all it's not against um, the, uh, um, the the experience of of the delightful, but rather the the delight that comes from from the uh, human sense pleasures is really just not not that uh, interesting or compelling or, or attractive so that's a a, a, a a helpful perspective on that and and in terms of um, the uh, so the working with the hindrances like the hindrance of sense desire. It, uh, when that has uh, really been understood and the uh, mind is able to let go of that, then that provides a greater access and uh, ability to develop the, the states of concentration and clarity of mind and the, the blissfulness that comes with that. So, the uh, And it's a, a common experience where people are on retreat and they uh, uh, have a very quiet time, all the food is provi- provided and there's a routine and everyone's keeping silence and you uh, it's It's not uncommon for people at the end of a retreat to say, "I john, i don't want to go back <laughs> can i <laughs> can I just stay on or like a, a feeling of real uh, disinterest of going back to the job or the family or the you know, the underground uh, and the uh, life on the m twenty five and that uh that's that sort of the, the the delight of the of the quiet mind is uh, is something that is uh, deeply attractive. Thus contemplation of the body can become a basis for the development of samatha or it can lead to an application of sati to feelings and mental phenomena as described in the Satipatthana Sutta. The fact that a firm grounding of awareness in the body provides an important basis for the development of both karma and insight Maybe why, of the four Satipatthanas, body contemplation has received the most extensive and detailed treatment in the discourses and commentaries." And so not only is it the biggest part of the Satipatthana Sutta itself, that the, the um, Kayanupasana, the contemplation of the body, that's like uh, the the biggest proportion of the Sutta is just on mindfulness of the body, but also, as he says, that, that of the four Satipatthanas, it, in terms of how it's picked up in other suttas and the commentaries, that gets more attention, more page space, than the other other, uh, foundations of mindfulness, the other satipatthanas. This emphasis on the body contemplations continues today in the Vipassana schools of the Theravada tradition, where mindfulness of the body occupies a central position as a foundational satipatthana practice. The discourses repeatedly emphasize the great value of mindfulness of the body. According to them, those who do not practice mindfulness of the body do not, quote, partake of the deathless, unquote. Uh, and that, um, that's an interesting collection of suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya. Uh, in the Book of the Ones, you have um, uh, this whole series of very, very similar short suttas where the Buddha says, you know, those who partake of, uh, of the Uh, uh, those who don't partake of mindfulness of the body don't partake of the deathless those who uh, those who do partake of mindfulness of the body do partake of the deathless those who practice mindfulness of the body practice the deathless those who um, you know develop uh, mindfulness of the body develop uh, the the deathless and so on like a a a whole series of let's see eleven different twelve different suttas that uh, that carry on on that that theme in the Book of the Ones it's Sutta's number 616 to 627, if you're interested. Which is a no, uh, it's no small thing. And as I was saying uh, in one of the earlier readings, the very first discourse in the um, Connected discourses about the unconditioned, the Asankata Sangita. Um, the Buddha says, I will teach you the conditioned and the way leading to the unconditioned. What is the way leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed towards the body is the way leading to the unconditioned. So that that um, uh, really uh, interesting that equating that mindfulness of the body and partaking of the deathless, uh, or, or the uh, the way being the way to the unconditioned, um, and uh, you think the body, well, this is born and this is going to die, so it's definitely death bound, but yet uh, it's through the, the mindfulness through that fully uh, knowing and attuning. Uh, understanding the body as it is that then that which is unborn undying uh, is uh, facilitated in in being realized and so again it's no small statement of the Buddha saying those who partake who do not partake of mindfulness of the body do not partake of the deathless those who do partake of mindfulness of the body do partake of the deathless so it's a um, uh, 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 no small statement no no small thing that the, the Buddha is stating there and and if that if when you when we hear those words think well how can that be or how does that work that's a marvelous opportunity to take that with you and, and carry it into the temple and sit on it how does that work how can it be that mindfulness of the body is the the path to the deathless how can that be if the body is born and the body dies so how can that lead to the, to the deathless and to to explore that, to um, uh, examine that. The uh, yes, Andreas. Um,
1: so does this mean that contemplation of the body is also by itself enough to let go of identification with thoughts and with mental states? So can one only look at the body to get an insight into the deathless?
0: Even in relation to the mind, well, it's like the uh, in the Tasatis, the mindfulness of the body Sutta. You know, it, 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 it's like on mindfulness of breathing that you you take that as a doorway, and then that leads into the development of all the other aspects. So that mindfulness of breathing, is like well, watching your breath. Well, it's just watching your breath. What's that? You know, that, that's not that's not up to much. What's that going to lead to? And then the Buddha opens it up, and you realize, oh my goodness, you can watch the breath in terms of the physical body. You can watch the breath in terms of feeling. You can watch the breath in terms of mind state. You can watch the breath in terms of the nature of Dhamma itself. Oh look, you know, there's a whole there's a whole universe in there. So
1: there you, you but there you're already watching feelings and mind as well, aren't you? Oh. I'm just wondering if only watching the body by itself, so just watching the breath, for example, the four first parts of the anapanasati sutta that pertain only to the body, mm-hmm. and not going beyond that, and just sticking with that, can take one all the way, if one never actually observes feelings.
0: And well, you can try it. <laughs> you can. I. I. I mean they. Uh I'd see it more as an access point. That's that when the Buddha says, "One who partakes of mindfulness of the body partakes of the deathless," it's more like that's because it's not just uh, the world does not work in in neat and dis uh, and discrete packets. They uh, that uh, things overlap, and even in the physical world, you can't you, know, you can say. This electron and that proton are separate. Well, they're not really. You know, in terms of, uh, well, you can, you can theorize it and say, well, yeah, on one level they are, but another level, no. Everything overlaps everything else. Or well, like mind. You know, everything you, you can say, okay, the, my my mind is separate from your mind, but then you can also say, well, <clears throat> mind doesn't exist in in physical space. So. Yeah. You know, only the, the physical body relates to three-dimensional space the mind doesn't have any place where it is or it isn't so therefore our minds must be overlapping so they're not separate at all so, in the, so what I mean I'm try, not trying to confuse things but when we try to make clear it's a little neat divisions I'll just focus on the body and not focus on feeling well good luck because everything that you know about the body is, is through perception and feeling You can't just slice it out. You know, it, it just doesn't. In a theoretical world, you can, but this isn't a theoretical world. Mm. So, uh, so the way I, I read it is, is in much more sort of. You, you're focusing on that and sort of making that the doorway. Okay, I'm just going to attend to mindfulness of the body, and then you just see what it leads into. Like you make that your, the doorway that you're you're going through, but then the doorway opens up to the whole of the dhamma. That's how I see it Your body can also your body on the parts inside the body and the elements and so on. Yeah, th it's uh, there, there's uh yeah. there's all kinds of different dimensions <coughs> to it. Mindfulness of the body uh, is a source of joy. And that's also from the Anguttara Book of the Ones, in the same section. And can be truly considered to be one's best friend. That's from the uh, Theragata, which was a a statement made by Ananda after the Buddha's uh, parinibbana. And so mindfulness can be, uh, can be, mindfulness of the body can be truly considered one's best friend. A verse from the Gata Eden reports a monk reflecting that if he were granted only one wish, it would be that the whole world might enjoy unbroken mindfulness of the body. Very interesting wish. <laughs> uh, very compassionate and thoughtful. Although meditation practices for contemplating the body appear to have had ancient origins, and were already known in ascetic and contemplative contemplative circles uh, contemporary with the Buddha the commentaries point out that his analytical approach and comprehensive approach was a distinctively new feature so this was not unique it was not like the Four Noble Truths or Dependent Origination which were um, say uh, launched as a a form of contemplation by the Buddha but uh, these different kinds of Analysis of the body and contemplation of the body were were already existent in various different ways, but the um, commentaries point out that the, the Buddha's approach was distinctively a, a new feature. Another of the the, the aspects of body contemplation that um, that uh, I like to um, refer to is also the the sense of um <coughs> of wonder that, and the uh, along with the the asuba aspect of the body and uh, the um you know, which is there to counteract the the force of, of sexual desire and that the habits of projection of the mind of of um you know, judging uh, hair of the head hair of the, hair of the body nails teeth and skin as sort of attractive or interesting that uh the, the wonderment from just contemplating how the body works, because uh, the, you don't have to be a biologist or a physiologist or a doctor to, to um, learn much about the body these days, and to, to just consider what it takes for the body to function. We, we can be very casual or blasé about the body, or just relate to it in terms of, uh, oh, my knees are really sore, or, oh, I'm hungry, or, <laughs> or I've got a headache, and... Uh, but isn't it fantastic that you, that you, can, you can have a headache? <laughs> isn't, it, uh, isn't it wonderful? The knee is an extraordinary thing. The vertical spine is a very new invention. It's only like a you know, million years old or so. You know, this is a new thing. So the knee, like a, 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 a mammal with a vertical spine, balancing a body on, on, two, on two legs, is an amazing thing. You, know, you might complain that your knees get sore; they don't work very well. But hey, they're just working on it. You know, it's, it's a new thing, and so it's uh, balancing a whole body's weight on these two flexible sticks. is quite an extraordinary thing, and the foot is even more amazing. That when you, when you, if you want to, to develop a sense of appreciation of, of your body, if you just do standing meditation, just stand with your eyes closed and see how, how difficult it is to stay upright. You think, well standing, that's pretty easy for most of us. Okay, it's not a big deal. But try, when you, if you close your eyes, and just feel how much adjusting and, and, and sort of flickering a, a back and forth that has to go on between the, the, the toes and the, and the heels and the, and the, the spine, just to, just to stand still. You're not doing anything except standing. And because our, our eyes are giving us all kinds of cues to help the body orient itself and make those adjustments. When you, when you close your eyes and the body hasn't got those visu- visual cues, it's really tough to, to balance this whole you know, 70, 80, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 kilos of stuff on these two flexible sticks. You know, if you think about it like that, it's like, wow, that's extraordinary. How does this thing work? <laughs> And so, you know, I did, I did do a degree in physiology years ago. I mean, it's nearly 40 years ago now. Um, and I, I did ha- have a lot of that sense of wonderment. I, uh, sometimes you just stagger out of one of these lecture theatres and you think, how does this work? You know, I'd I, I see myself walking down the street or see other people walking, walking along and think, how do we do it? How do we even... See or hear or stand up. It's just, there's so many things that could go wrong. You know, in every in every second, there's hundreds of millions of chemical reactions going on all the time, and they all have to work perfectly with each other. And so, often when people come to me and they say, you know, they're uh, they're distressed about their illness or their uh, or their um, their kind of. Um, uh, it's some aspect that, you know, their hearing is going, or they've got a, a knee surgery they have to have. It's like, well, I think, you know, you feel a certain amount of sympathy, uh, for them, but then you realize, well, <laughs> you know, this is an incredibly, uh, insanely intricate instrument. Yeah, it's uh, fantastically intricate and complicated. And it's just amazing that it works as well as it does to me. And that... Uh, and then, when things go off balance, then when you you hold it in this way, then you you realize, well, this is really inconvenient or painful, or I really would choose not to have this. But, you know, it it should not be a surprise that that things don't all work perfectly well according to my wishes, because it's amazing, uh, really extraordinary, that uh, things can function as well as they do. Yeah. Uh, I often tell the story. I was uh, at. Leading a retreat um, in the states one time, and this fellow was a medical who re- was on the retreat was a medical researcher uh, he was like a pulmonary uh, like a lung expert and uh, <coughs> and uh, he was talking about how it was been difficult for him as the retreat began to just unravel himself from all of these um, his research and all these different papers and this Data rattling through his, his thoughts and and uh, so we were talking about this this field and, and then being a researcher and having to do experiments and studies and publish things and and uh, and he said and he he was an expert on one particular aspect of one lung disease that uh, that was you know, he was a he was that was his field as one aspect of one disease for one organ. And uh, and he said, I can't even read everything that gets published. So I, I, you know, I haven't got. There are not enough hours in the day to read what's published, just on my disease, just on on my little tiny field. And he said, and I said, really? He said, and he looked at me like this sort of pained expression. He said, Ajahn, it's an abyss. <laughs> this kind of ache in his heart, like. <laughs> and he could just see it was getting more and more and more the the, the amount of information, just on one on one illness, uh, so much is is published. So, um, so that kind of uh, approach is a different way of relating to the body. Is to cultivate the sense of appreciation and wonder, and that helps a lot in terms of of mindfulness of the body when things go. Wrong, quote unquote, when that you've got a, a weird sensation in your your foot, or you've got sort of sciatic pain shooting up your uh, your side, or uh, you've got uh, your your guts don't work so well, or your, uh, uh, one of your eyes starts going fuzzy. But rather than thinking, oh no, oh no, this is terrible, oh this is a disaster, and then reacting to the the ailment with fear uh, of what it's going to turn into or aversion. Like negativity, uh, fearing it, hating it, and so sort of tensing up and resisting, instead to to cultivate a sense of of, um, of gratitude. Like, wow, well, I'm really glad it was working for as long as it did. <laughs> now there's a bit of a workout. I've got to understand what this sciatic is about, or what this eye problem is, or this leg problem, or this foot. You know what it's what it's doing, but. Uh, not meeting it with resentment, or fear, or, uh, or aversion, but with gratitude and loving-kindness. And, and that makes a, a, a very... It's, it's not a sort of classical way of, of contemplating the body, but I feel it's an extremely skillful one, because it shifts that, you know, you're supposed to work for me, and never go wrong. It's like a, you know, running a company, like, no, you're all supposed to show up on time, Work really hard. Do your job perfectly. Never complain. Never make any mistakes. <laughs> and always be happy, right? Yeah. And always do your job well. Like you know, who's, who's ever run a company like that? You know, it's in, like, it's insane. You, you'd never ask that of any, any or you'd never expect that of anybody that's working for you. But that we expect that. And that's how we relate to our bodies. Like, what do you mean you got a, you're sore? You know, what do you mean my, my nose is running? No, that's, that's really inconvenient. <laughs> what do you mean, my, yeah, my energy's run out? That's, that's not right. Stop it. <laughs> so uh, I really encourage a sense of uh, and you don't have to start reading anatomy books or physiology books and such like. I mean, they've got quite a few in the library, but just to uh, consider. Just even what a single cell, an ordinary like a muscle cell or a skin cell uh, or a, skin, uh, a cell from your, your small intestine, what it, what it is and what it, what it does. How your hearing works or your eye, you know, the, the uh, rods and cones in your eye that help you to see in dark and light and colour and how your ears work. Just to, just to look at one little thing and, and uh, to realise, my goodness, this is amazing. Uh, and to cultivate that sense of appreciation of gratitude and that changes the way that we relate to the body which uh, on an instinctual level we basically ignore the body until it starts hurting <laughs> you think that uh, the thing that stops our chin from scraping along the ground when we want to get from A to B it's like the, the sort of uh it's like the, the supposed to be the uh, obedient servant that never causes trouble or gets upset. But like, like uh, any of us who've been in a role of service, know that we like to be appreciated, <laughs> and it's it's, uh, it's uh, it helps if the boss is kind and accommodating. And and when you get things wrong, then the the, the boss is is friendly and compassionate rather than you know angry and demanding. So that's my thesis about uh, body contemplations and I think we go on from here next time we'll be beginning mindfulness of breathing I think, yes, mindfulness of breathing is where we go to next so Any final questions, comments reflections, yes I
1: think I misunderstood the whole point of like I'm, I'm so glad to hear we were talking about the appreciation of bodies because I, 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 now I realize that I misunderstood like a, this teaching from Buddha because I thought that uh, my body or my sensual desires or sensations are kind of a hindrance, so I have to overcome it. Like I have to, what is I have to really push it like away. Like I have to go against it. That's how I thought about this practice. But when I'm listening to your talking about the appreciation of the body and the, the realize, like realizing the wonder of body functions, kind of really fresh to me. Like now I realize that I misunderstood home like a lot for a long time because I thought when I when we did the sutta about the body, the points like a. Like it, if it felt like a very what is it, gross, dark, and you know, something.
0: You know. Well, there there is that aspect. I mean, there there's different elements in there, both of the the need to counteract the the delusory quality of sexual desire. Just like the the very person that you are you're sexually attracted to, then a year later you can want to kill them. You know. I mean, it's like, there's a, uh, um, uh, to recognize, yeah, that's a deeply delusory force that's at work there. Yeah, you know, uh, to relate to another being, that one, one, one moment this being is the most desirable thing in the world and then sometime later this being deserves to die because of them upsetting and, and hurting you and, or being, a, being sort of wrong and bad in some way in our perceptions. So that there there are those practices that that are very specifically designed to counteract that that kind of delusion, like I was describing of that party when I was a nineteen-year-old or whatever. That uh, yeah, that's that's a force to understand and to learn how not to be swept up by, because it's so powerful. But uh, as a counterpart to that, it's like. But then there's, we don't need to hate that or fear it, but just. And to understand it, and then when we, when it, we can understand it, then um, we can relate to the body in a much a very very different way. so the, there are different uh, elements that, that are, are, are there because if you relate and my experience is that the particularly the monks who relate to the body as a sort of the, they go at it like you know it's disgusting and it's foul and sexual desire is really evil and it's got to be wiped out. Then they they're very uh, ardent with their uh, super kamatana, you know, with the, unho- you know, the unattractiveness practices for a, a time, and then boop, next you know, five years later they're getting married and they got three children. You know. <laughs> they're, they're uh, you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not kidding. There's uh, not mentioning any names, but one one monk, one ex monk who was known as the most sort of ferocious ascetic. Um, who literally used to, he, did, he was so ardent doing the, um, the sitters practice, the sitters meditation practice, he, he literally chained himself to the post in the middle of the meditation hall so he wouldn't, he could sit up all night, wouldn't fall over. The other monks, the yeah, abbot was trying to get him to cool down a bit. But uh, he, after more than 20 years as a monk, he, he disrobed and uh, got together with a 19 year old. You know, hmm? Yeah, it's just uh, uh, so. Uh, and he was so uh, famously ascetic, like notoriously ascetic. And Ajahn it would sometimes describe him uh, like looking in his arms bowl at the food, going, this <laughs> <laughs> kind of. this kind of making these, these kind of grimaces, <laughs> disgusting. Yeah. And so. You know, not to make too much fun, because I certainly haven't you know, conquered sexual desire in, a, in, a, in a, any kind of comprehensive way, but to understand that, how it works, if you just sort of fear it and push it away and try to sort of hate it and suppress it, then you just make it stronger. And you can, it's like a, a, a kind of um, dictatorship. Through a dictatorship you can suppress the forces and, you know, control things for a certain amount of time, but then the underground is busy. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, the underground is busily at work, and then as soon as your control slips, and whoop, yeah, off it goes. So the, the uh, <clears throat> there's a, a, a extraordinarily skillful balance that needs to be found, whereby there's a capacity to understand. Sexual desire and to to know it. Okay, I know what this is, and I know where this is going, and to be able to to, to say no, and that's not going to be followed. I know what that is, and I'm not, um, I'm not going to follow it because it's going to a place I don't you know I, I don't want to go to. But without fear, without aversion, but just like, no. That door, <laughs> not that door, that door. And that that's one of the. Um, great skills of Dhamma practice and and what we call practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma rather than practicing Dhamma in accordance with fear or self-view or or, uh, aversion okay that's enough for today I think